Well, good morning, everybody. So good to gather together. Welcome, welcome, welcome. For anybody who's brand new, for sake of introduction, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. also want to make sure that we give a specific welcome to anybody joining us on live stream. Can we just give a warm welcome? Yeah, we're so glad that you're with us in that way. We hope that you'll be able to join us in person sometime soon. Uh, before I jump into the message and talk for today, um, as many of you might know, we started this year, as we start every year, with a word for the year. Our word for the year is practice, and uh, that comes out of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we spent all last year talking about, and Jesus' admonition to His disciples to not just hear His words, but actually practice them. And so we want to be people of practice so that we are people who are wise disciples, not foolish disciples. And and so we've taken the last few Sundays to talk about practice. What does that mean? What does it look like? How do we engage that that kind of thing? And what gets in the way of that? So uh, we have not only the messages up, we're actually posting a blog uh, that has messages, additional resources, uh, books for uh, kind of deeper study, as well as a podcast that we're recording, or we recorded, uh, that it's between myself and Dr. Hud, Hud McWilliams. Uh, some of you might be familiar with him. And we talk about some of the nuances, some of the motivations, some of the things that are, are kind of uh, just a great conversation piece that maybe didn't make it into a message and ways to gain traction in engaging practice as followers of Jesus. So we will be posting something like that at the end of every practice series. We're starting our first practice series today on a particular practice. Um, but that is up on our website, millcitychurch.org. Go to the blog, and it'll be the first thing there. You can kind of go through that and um, be a helpful resource for us as we integrate uh, the teachings of Jesus into our lives and therefore be practicers of His words. So uh, this morning, I've got next to me this beautiful cake. Um, how, how, how beautiful is this? This is the slice from the first gathering. Um, Anybody like frosting? Mm, me too. Uh, anybody like cake? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna. Well, I'm just gonna cut a little slice out for today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, excuse me for a moment. Now the. Crazy thing about this cake is it's all frosting. See, notice the response. You're like excited about frosting. Every good cake needs just a little bit of the right amount of frosting. But then when I say it's all frosting, you're like, oh, why? Because a cake needs more than frosting. And actually, if you ate all of this, chances are you get sick. I wonder if in our day and age, our relationships are all frosting. And so we find ourselves getting sick as a culture. We find that there's less substance, but more frosting. Meaning we're connected. We're more connected than we've ever been in the history of the world. 
thanks to technology, social media, Facebook, etc., 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 etc. But though we're connected, frosting, what if those relationships actually are lacking substance? And we're getting sick as a culture reflected then in things like in 2018, the Prime Minister of the the UK, Theresa May, appointing a minister of loneliness to the cabinet because they found that 20% of the population in the UK was lonely, indicating that this was contributing to some of the other factors in culture, whether it be medical issues or social issues ills. Do you know what the percentage of people who identify as lonely in the United States is? It's over 35%. I wonder if we should appoint a minister of loneliness. In 1984, a survey was done that found that the majority of Americans had three to five confidants. Recently, another survey was done, and they found that that number has dropped to one with 25% of the population saying they have zero. The Surgeon General, several years ago, said that we are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness, which you might wonder why is the Surgeon General talking about that, because he said the impact was more significant than 15 cigarettes a day, having an impact on the health of our nation. Let's bring it a little closer to home. There was a survey and study done by the Chamber of Commerce, meaning the national organization that connects with chambers of commerce in cities around the country. And through the studies, they found that Colorado, specifically Denver, was was in the top 30 most lonely cities in America. And northern Colorado, Fort Collins in particular, was the fastest growing, was the fourth fastest growing city in relationship to loneliness, becoming lonelier, especially amongst males. Now, these are stats that are kind of out there, but I wonder what we'd find in this room. I wonder if the idea of loneliness resonates deeply. The idea that maybe you're surrounded by a bunch of people and yet you feel more alone than ever. You have more social media followers than ever, and yet you feel so alone. And maybe it's not in every area of your life, but there's aspects of your life where you feel like, I don't think anybody else understands. I don't know how to do this. I'm going it alone. The U.S. is one of the loneliest nations in the world, and one of the reasons that people and researchers would say is because affluence is tied to loneliness. We're one of the richest nations in the world, and therefore loneliness is on the rise. Same is true for Colorado and true for northern Colorado. I know that does not apply to everyone, but it does apply to a lot of people in our region. Interestingly enough, a pastor from Rwanda, his name is Charles Mugisha. He was a refugee from the Rwandan genocide that happened in 1994. And when he came to America for the first time and was around for just a little bit, based on some of his observations, he said, first of all, the more resources a person gets, the more walls he or she puts up, and the lonelier they become. 
Contrasting that to his experience in Africa where people had very little and yet experienced depth and no walls between one another. He went on to later say that he said, it seems that Americans do everything alone. Sociologists are finding that loneliness leads to tribalism. Certainly one of the contributing factors to the division in our country. The contempt, the weaponizing, the politicization of everything, tribalism. God, though, gives an antidote to loneliness, and it's not tribalism, it's community. Community is the first practice that we're going to jump into in this year as we take some time throughout the year to examine and take a deeper dive into different practices that we need to engage in order to be followers of the way of Jesus. Community, as given and constructed by God, is based on mutual love. Tribalism, the answer or the way of our culture, is based on mutual hate. God sets the lonely in families. The individualism of our culture sets the lonely in tribes. And so we want to follow the way of Jesus, not end up in an echo chamber based on who we're against, but we want to end up in a spirit-formed, authentic, Jesus-centered community that makes us and shapes us into people of love. All practices, including this one, are built around the lifestyle of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, in order to follow me, here are some spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines for you to follow and engage in. Instead, he says, follow me, which means do what I do. So we look at the lifestyle of Jesus and we look and see that Jesus lived in community. He had disciples. He had people that he was around living with. Jesus spent his life with others. In the cultural moment and milieu that we find ourselves in today, we have a deep desire for something greater than connectivity. We have a desire to be seen. We have a desire to be known. And not just known, but enjoyed for who you are in, in your successes and your weaknesses. And not to be on our own. Kurt Bull of shame, he's also a, a, a psychologist and a medical doctor, he says, and a follower of Jesus, says, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us to be seen. What does a child say when they're young? Dad, look at me. Dad, look at me. Even as you grow older and maybe you might find yourself in high school and you playing basketball or whatever, and, and when you score a basket, shoot a goal, whatever, what oftentimes happens? You look up into the stands, Dad, Mom, did you see that? Did you see me? In Genesis chapter 1, God creates a perfect world. Each day of creation at the end, He says, this is good. Kind of a pat on the back, well, good job, God. <laughs> and I love this. This is, this is as it's supposed to be. At the final day, creates humans. This is very good. All good, as it's supposed to be. Perfect in every way. No sin, no death, nothing wrong. Everything in perfect, loving order. But Genesis chapter 2, sin has not entered the world. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for 
Isn't that, a, that, that to me is an amazing verse. Because God created a perfect world. The scripture says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. I mean, that sounds like pretty amazing. Pretty incredible. Everything's right. Everything is, and, and God says, not good. Something more is needed. Not just something, someone. But remember this. Adam's got God. What's he saying? Adam needs more than me. More than just God. For any of us who would say, I just need Jesus by myself. That's it. Just me and Jesus. I don't need anything else. That's not true. In the perfect world, God says, we need more than just him. So, we turn to your neighbor and say, I need you. Look us straight in the eye. I need you. Now, turn to your second choice and say, I need you too. Now, for some of us, that's kind of hard to say. I need need you. It's very biblical, but it's not very American. And we've been shaped in a culture of individualism and independence that is pushed against interdependence and need for others. But not only did Jesus surround himself with people, he also said to them as he's about to go into and go to the cross, his most difficult moments, he's praying in a garden. And as he's praying, it says that it was so intense that he was sweating drops of blood. And multiple times in the middle of what seems to be his prayers, he goes to his disciples who are not far off and he finds them sleeping and he says, can you not please pray? What's he saying? I need you guys. Jesus, the King of the world, Son of God, incarnate in human flesh. What's he saying? I need you. Please, can you just pray for me and with me? The writer of Hebrews, chapter 10, says, Let us hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Towards love. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Anybody else need some encouragement in the room? Anybody else like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm overly encouraged. Thank you very much. <laughs> so our working definition for this series on community is that is intentional, safe, long-term relationships centered around the way of Jesus. Now, some of you are like, I don't have any. You begin now and they become long-term. So we got to start somewhere. But, but intentional and safe, meaning uh, they're, they're places where we feel the ability to open our hearts and our lives. In other words, it's not just being in a social setting, going to a party, and I have 10 people around me or 20 people around me, therefore I've got community. There's something more to it. It's about, about not just living the individual way, but living communally. The American way, though, is the individual way. 
And the American evangelical culture has oftentimes ingested this value system and individualized our relationship with God. So much so that we have all together forgotten that God is saving not just individuals, but He's rescuing and saving for Himself a people. We have radically individualized every aspect of the Christian faith, who while according to Peter, who walked with Jesus in his letter, first and second, Peter, Jesus is not in the business of saving mere individuals, but as he says in chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Those are all groups, a God's special possession, that you may declare, you, not you individually, you together, may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Because then he says this, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God sent Jesus, and He came not just to save individuals so that we could go in different direction doing our own thing, doing what we want on our own, but rather so that we could practice and communicate the beauty and the hope and the way of Jesus together which means that what we speak, how we live, what we practice must be done together. It got this quiet in the first gathering because I think we're like, uh, wait a minute, just me and Jesus is good. I just need to pray. Yes, and it's not an either or, it's a both and. And too often we think individually and then we add community later. What we need to do is put both together. It, it isn't that we don't have an individual, personal, very personal, ye, God knows you, you know Jesus, there is something beautiful. He knows the number of hairs on your heads, head, you only have one head, and so, but he knows the number of hairs that you do or don't have. He knows your deepest thoughts and your deepest fears. He knows. It is so personal, but it is not private. And so there's personal together with the people of God. Which means there is no apprenticeship to Jesus without community. If we read the Gospels, how many times... Do you see Jesus meeting with just one of his disciples? The only one time that I'm aware of or I can find in the scriptures is maybe when Jesus walks with Peter on the beach after he's resurrected. But other than that, and we don't even know if that's 100% true, if he might have done it with the others around, it's Peter, James, and John. Jesus and his disciples, not, he didn't have one disciple, he had disciples. Life transformation happens in the context of community. Barna, which is kind of the Christian version of Gallup in terms of, of surveys within or about Christianity, 
followers of Jesus, asked us and surveyed followers of Jesus and asked what was their preferred method of discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus, becoming more like him. 38% selected one of the multiple boxes, and one of those boxes was on my own. 38% said, that's my preferred method, which amongst all the other boxes was the highest percentage of any of the other boxes. We just have this desire to do things by ourselves. Because why? We want to become financially independent. We want to become socially independent. We want to be all these other independent things, so therefore we think we need to be spiritually independent. The Sermon on the Mount, just like so much of the Scripture, is written, and it says you, but that you is a plural you. It is not a singular you. It is a plural you. More like, it's almost like the Bible should be, we should, you guys, you guys are the salt of the earth. That includes you, but it's you together. Or if you're from the South, y'all, right? Y'all are the salt of the earth. Or if you're from New Jersey, you guys are the salt of the earth. Which means I cannot become who I am designed to become without you. And you can't become who you are designed to become without someone else too. Some of you have seen this before. I think it's worth revisiting for all of us. It's the quadrants of awareness. It'll go up here on the screen. And each quadrant is uh, either a, has to do with what you know and what others know. The first one is the quadrant that you know and I know. And so that's the public self. That would be like that I have glasses on, that I have brown curly hair, uh, black jeans on. Those are the things that I know and you know. Uh, you don't have to ask me. You can see it. I, you know, it's, it's out in plain sight. We live in a world that oftentimes spends all of its energy curating our public images. Through social media or whatever, utilizing, trying to present a picture of who we want others to understand us to be. And so we see, we put out the best parts of ourselves, but we hide the parts that we don't like. But if we only spend our time there, we're going to be missing a fullness of life. And so then another aspect is what I know, but you don't know. These would be things that I would have to tell you. These would be things about my family of origin. These would be things about fears or temptations or dynamics of my relationships, my relationship with Jossie or, or struggles uh, that I might find or where, I've, where I wrestle with things with God, things like that. I have to share with you. I have to take my mask off for you to know those things. And those aren't all bad things. Struggles and, and temptations, they might be dreams. It might be hopes, successes, things that I still would have to share with you in order for you to know them. And then there's another aspect, and that is what I don't know, but you know. If I had lettuce in my teeth or my fly was down, you know, and, and you're like, how's it going? And somebody's like, flies down. Right? We need flies down friends. Because as embarrassing as it is, if you're like, went through your whole day without somebody, you're like, do I have any friends that are like kind enough to tell me, hey, uh, I hate to say this to you, but 
The scripture says in Proverbs that wounds from a friend can be trusted, meaning that it might sting. Now, lesson your teeth, your fly down, fairly trivial. But what about, what about somebody saying, hey, um, I noticed that the way that you seem to interact with your wife or kids isn't, isn't great. Can we talk about that? Hey, you seem defensive whenever somebody brings up something negative or gives you any feedback. No, I'm not. We need people like that. And in the the same vein, it isn't necessarily all negative, like highlighting weaknesses. It could also be somebody like I've had in my life say, hey, I see something in you. I see maybe a calling. Have you ever thought about this? I notice the way that you are with this person or that person or in this group. There's a gift. And you're like, what? We couldn't see it ourselves, but someone else can, and they can draw it out of us. It takes trust to have people that can say those things to us. It takes trust for us to be able to be in a space where we take our mask off, and that's community. There's one more square on this, on this graphic, and that is things that I don't know and things that you don't know. Only God knows. It's our potential self. It is being formed into how God designed us to be formed, into the likeness of Jesus. The only way that we will reach our potential self is when we engage all other three quadrants. That we don't just curate ourselves, but we actually take our masks off and allow somebody to speak into the blind spots of our lives. The other, specifically two, blind spots and mask self, require other people. You cannot do those on your own. They require other people for us to let in and other people to be able to reflect back. If we're going to be who God called us to be. I grew up in church and grew up going to Sunday school and I don't know if this song is still sung, but anybody remember a song you'd usually start down like this? Read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. And you'll grow, grow. Anybody? Yeah. Don't read your Bible and don't pray every day and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. I don't like that song. Because <laughs> it's, it's just, it's individual. Now, are those, should we pray and read the Bibles? Yes. It should be, read your Bible and stay in community even if it gets hard and you'll grow, grow, grow. <laughs> Read your Bible and stay in community even if it's really, 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 really hard and you'll grow, grow, grow. Some of my closest friends are the people I've had the biggest fights with. And we're still friends. It's not easy. But it's so vital to our formation as followers of Jesus. Charles Duhigg wrote the book Power of Habit. In there he talks about what he says is keystone habits. Like exercise, maybe for somebody. If you exercise, it will impact and create other types of habits. So if you exercise, you'll oftentimes eat right. If you eat right, you'll go to bed at a better time. If you go to bed at a better time, then you'll get up because you need to exercise. So, so it like impacts and has domino effect. I'd like to suggest that community is a keystone practice. If you do this, it will impact other practices. 
I was talking with somebody several months ago who has stepped away from church, and I said, oh, what's, what's happening? We talked through that, and he said, you know something, though, I've noticed is as a result of not participating in church, a bunch of my other practices with God have fallen by the wayside. I'm not part of prayer or this or that, somebody else. Because why? Because it's a keystone practice. The other side of that, for all of you introverts in the room, is solitude. Those two keystone practices, if we put them into practice, will influence the way in which all these other practices start to flourish and happen in our lives. We will get to solitude later, but today and these next few weeks, community. And it is the first practice on purpose. There isn't a do this one first, this isn't a step, and then stop doing that one and move to the next one. But the reason I'm starting with this is because we need to fight the hyper-individualistic way we think about life and faith. And too often we'll say, okay, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read my Bible, and then we get to community and we're like, I don't know how I can fit that in. But we need to create the container that God has given for us in order for the practices to integrate into our lives as a result of engaging with the people around us. Now, one of the challenges of growing in faith in the modern world is that our journey has no markers along the way. It's hard to know if we're making progress. When we're younger, we know that we're progressing because there's indicators along the way. In other words, to grow physically is evident because years pass, we get taller, we, we get hairier, we get developed in different ways, we grow intellectually, right? We, we, we get test scores, that helps us know whether or not we're gaining traction in a particular area. We move on to the next grade, we pass. We grow by going to college, and then there's, there's movement and, and indicators even in that, that we've picked a major, then we've got an internship, we graduate, eventually, potentially, we get additional letters behind our name, indicating movement and growth and progress. We grow in our careers, maybe start at entry level, maybe then you move on to some sort of management position, maybe at that point you start your own business, or maybe you come, become a partner, you add responsibilities, roles, titles, maybe you're... Your income grows and goes up as you are faithful. But when it comes to faith, when it comes to becoming more like Jesus, how do we know that we're growing as people of love? How do we know? Is it because we go to church, the average being these days once a month, and we, our life generally looks successful? I would suggest that those are not the primary indicators of spiritual maturity or the condition of our heart. The answer to how we know if we're progressing is community, because community marks our progress. When I spend time by myself... I think I'm the most patient, loving person in the world. (laughs) But then I get around other people and I realize, no, I'm not. (laughs) Right? Uh, Community reveals what's missing. I am patient until I'm around an annoying person. (laughs) It reveals our defensiveness. It reveals our greed. It reveals our lack of kindness, 
lack of service. Not too long ago, I was talking to Josie about how I thought I was doing such a good job as a listener, and she's like, yeah. (laughs) See, if it was just up to me and my evaluation, high marks. Ronald Rollheiser, he wrote in his book, The Holy Longing, Catholic theologian, he said, separate from church, the individual quest of God, however sincere the search, lives the unconfronted life. Without church, we have more private fantasy than real faith. Now, he mentions the word uh, private fantasy. We have this fantasy. I mean, some of us are like, yes, community, all about it. It's so good. But then some of you are like, no, it's not. It's so bad. Because if we've engaged in community in any form or another, we can recognize that it can bring about some of the greatest and, and beautiful joys of our lives and the most painful aspects of our lives. So we've got to hold intention and the gap between the ideal of community and the reality of community. Our apprenticeship to Jesus is somewhere in that middle. As Eugene Peterson, the a writer of the message version of the Bible, he says, community is part mystery and part mess. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, pastor, and martyr during World War II, said, only the fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, the mess, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise given to it. The sooner the this shock, excuse me, shock of disillusionment, there's a lot of S's. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. The disillusionment of like, oh, this isn't ideal. Oh, this, this group of people is made up of people. <laughs> <laughs> he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Christian community is not an ideal which we must realize it is rather a reality created by God in Christ which we may participate. It is in our participation of the mess that we actually become more like Him. It is the mess, the difficulty, the bumping, the conflict that pushes something in us. It's the worst part that brings about the possibility of the best part. There is no apprenticeship to Jesus without community, and there is no community without commitment. So this isn't just showing up periodically like, oh yeah, once a month, I've got my community. In our commitment-phobic, consumer-driven, hyper-individualistic age, one of the most formational things we can do is belong to a church. Face-to-face relationships of interdependence, accountability, and mutual service. Everybody says they want community, friendship, and love. But mention the words accountability and commitment, which is what true deep relationships are built on, and people run the other way, saying, i got to keep my options open, and nobody tells me what to do. It's basically saying, I will stay with you as long as I deem you're worth it or until you radically disappoint me. In our world today, we have what's called FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. So when somebody says, hey, you want to be a part of a city group? Maybe. You know what that means? 
Yes, unless something better comes along. You want to come to the party on Friday night? Maybe. Why can't you commit? I don't know if I'm honest, because I, you know, want to see if somebody else is doing something else. But if we can realize the value of long-term community, which takes consistency, there is no formation without repetition. If we can come to that, we can ditch FOMO and we can embrace JOMO. Joy of missing out. Are you going to be at City Group this, this, this week? Yep. You're like, don't wonder what other pottery I'm going to miss. Wonder what other. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I know. I know I need this. I know that I had a bump with Sally last week and I need to, I need to work that out. I need to show up. I need to show up because I had a bump with Sally. Too often we have a bump with Sally or a bump with Jerry, and before you know it, we're like, well, I, gotta, I, I need my distance from her. See, community, to use a football sports analogy, there's a lot of blocking and tackling. We love the long bomb. We love the, the Hail Mary. We love the, the game-winning touchdown. But sometimes it's just like one yard. Went to City Group, got a yard this week. Went to City Group, got another yard this week. Did a little blocking. Not very exciting. So sometimes we're like, ah, I wanna, I'm going to give up the yard for the big, fantastical experience. I'd rather have a 50-yard a throw than a one-yard, or what seems like maybe even a one-yard loss. Blocking and tackling. But before you know it, you're, mar- you're marching and you got a first down and then you get another. And that, instead of that 20-second, 50-yard bomb, you got a, a sustained drive and we're moving and we're chewing up clock. And before you know it, we've got a yard, we got three, we got two, we lost one, we got seven and you're on the goal line and you're moving. And the team that usually can do that consistently is the team that wins. And God is calling some of us to stop trying to catch the 50-yard bomb or throw the 50-yard bomb. Say, well, didn't do it, didn't work. I guess that's not real. You just need to start blocking and tackling. One yard at a time. Three yards at a time. And say, I might miss out on some, some bigger things every now and then, but it's worth it. The joy of missing out on the short-term fun is going to be worth the long-term joy. Short-term happiness is an easy exchange for long-term joy. I'm going to talk more about this in the future, but there was a study, the longest study ever done on relationships came out of Harvard, and they found that the number one key to people's longevity and happiness was relationships. Not more money not more titles, not all the other things that sometimes we spend all of our energy time to accumulate, not more experiences, relationships. So I don't know where you find yourself here today. Maybe you find yourself with a lot of frosting. You're like, it's just not satisfying. I need some protein. It's good, but I'm getting sick. I'm a little, I'm lonely. I got lots of connectedness. I have more followers than ever. I have more people that I can interact with and text with, but I'm lonely. I'm missing something. I want somebody to know about the difficulty of my life. I, maybe you're finding yourself alone. Does anybody understand the, the I, I, 
It's maybe it's not all of your life, but it's it's grieving the loss of a dad or a mom, a son or a daughter or a spouse. So alone. Maybe it's the maybe it's not the physical loss, but it's but it's it's social distance. The son or the daughter who's gone away. Or maybe as a single mom or a single dad. Maybe you're in a marriage and you find yourself really lonely because of the disconnect. It is not the way that God designed us to be and it's not the way that we have to live. But inside you maybe at this moment find yourself with a quiet ache. A quiet ache to be known, to be enjoyed. A quiet ache to be fully vulnerable and to experience no shame because you're seen and loved fully known and fully loved for people to celebrate your celebrations for you to grieve with those who grieve for it to go both ways and some of you are hearing this are like Aaron I believe you but I'm scared and the reason is because you've experienced the pain of community and relationships and maybe some of the most difficult pains have come from the body of Christ and it is a reality and it is a possibility. And we will oftentimes be most hurt in community. But the scripture says that we are also healed in community. We may not be healed in the community that hurt us, but we are healed in community. Our broken parts are fixed and healed in relationship. We need each other. I need you and you need me. You need the person next to you. You need the person in your city group. And we're going to talk about what does that look like? Sometimes we're like, I put myself around them, but it's not happening. What do we do? How do we open ourselves up? What does it look like to commit? Those are some things that we're going to go to in the next few weeks. So our weekly practice, as we start this practice, is an is a evaluation practice. To know what, where we need to go is helpful to understand where we are. So our weekly practice is, I want to encourage you, maybe you need a journal, maybe you need to just spend some time with extra time to reflect, but spend time evaluating the depth of your community and ask, what's missing? In other words, you might say, I've got lots of frosting, but I need some, I need some cake. And then say, what's getting in the way? What's getting in the way? Maybe, as we talked about last week, it's screens, it's the pace of your life. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's it's past hurts, whatever it might be, start thinking about what it is. And wherever you find yourself here today, I want to just encourage you, be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Offer it to Him. If you're like me, it's easy to say, yep, I'm going to do that, and then forget by Tuesday morning. Or So we have a little helpful way to help everybody in this room everybody in our house, and that is to get a weekly reminder. So you can get a weekly text reminder of the weekly practice. That way, just in case you forget by somewhere around midweek that you're getting a reminder to do just this. You get a weekly reminder with what I just said, to spend time evaluating the depth of your community and ask what's missing and what is getting in the way. The number's on the screen, 970-299-9997. You can text practice to that. You'll get signed up. You can opt in, and you can, of course, opt out at any time. I want to end with this one encouragement before we pray. Actually, two. 
<laughs> encouragements. The first one is that I think there's an opportunity for us as a church. There's an opportunity for us individually, but there's an opportunity for us as a church in relationship to community. We live in a portion of the country and specifically the portion of our state where there's high depression, suicide, anxiety rates, which are oftentimes attached to levels of community. As I mentioned earlier, there's a stat about fastest growing space of loneliness, especially amongst men. I also heard a stat recently, and I'm going to kind of try and connect all these together, and that is that uh, the over 50% of some of the cases that come into a hospital for, that require hospitalization are alcohol-related. Now, the reason I think that's important is oftentimes we go to al- somebody goes to alcohol to numb, to escape, and what might they be escaping? Loneliness. I wonder if some of the issues in our community might find their first movement of resolution in community. And what if we can create spaces, not just for you and me, but for people in our community who are dying without community, literally. So for some of you, it is an encouragement to lead a city group for more of Northern Colorado to look like heaven for more people to experience the sweetness of life that's not just frosting. And then finally, for anybody here in the room that maybe has never put your faith in Jesus, I just want to quickly encourage you to respond to the invitation of God to say yes. Cross the line of faith. Simply and sincerely say under your breath, Jesus, I give you my life. My life is yours. And the Bible says, And when we do that, Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God, and Jesus is the perfect friend. Never leaves us, never forsakes us, and is closer than any brother, any family member. He is the closest, most perfect friend we could ever have. He's not the only one we need, but he is an amazing first start. If that's you here today, would you give your life to Jesus? Just say, I need you, Jesus. Step into the family of God. Wherever you find yourself today, God, I want to pray. Would you meet us where we are? Help us to know you more deeply as well as the people of God. To not just live an individualistic life in pursuit of you, but that we would live a communal life in pursuit of you. That we might together become who you've called us to become. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.